Welcome to the Business of You podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Gogos. This podcast is dedicated to helping you uncover how to turn your big idea into big business and grow your personal brand into the business of your dreams. Each week, I'll talk to founders of all kinds of businesses, exploring how they launched and grew their companies. Behind every successful business is an epic journey, one that can serve as a roadmap to help you grow yours. The Business of You is all about frank conversations and unique business wisdom for the entrepreneur. It's a chance to tune into the story behind the brand and retrace the path of those who walked this road before you so you can pave your own road to success. Welcome to The Business of You. Today's guest is Juliette Starrett. She's the CEO of The Ready State, a media-based health and wellness SaaS and e-commerce company that she founded with her husband. This company disrupted the fitness industry with the creation of a completely new market category of movement and mobility. Juliette's prowess in marketing and branding helped grow the company in multi-channels. They have more than 1 million followers and have experienced a 60% increase in subscribers. The Ready State is now a multi-million dollar company with 50% year-over-year growth and a client list that includes the U.S. military, professional sports teams, and Olympians. And aside from that, in her spare time, Juliette is a mother of two teenage girls. I welcome Juliette Starrett to the Business of You. Today, I have Juliette Starrett with me from The Ready State. Juliette, it's so good to have you on The Business of You. How are you? I'm good, Rachel. I'm so excited to talk to you because I'm such a fan of you. <laughs> and I'm a fan of you. So great to have you. Um, so would love to hear your journey. You ha- are not only running one extremely successful business, but you had another one that uh, I know, unfortunately, didn't survive COVID, but would love to hear your backstory and your journey to becoming a super successful business owner. Sure. Um, man, I mean, I could go back to like three years old, but I won't go that far. Um, I, I will start by saying in my 20s after college, I was a professional athlete. I participated in a really fringe, weird sport called extreme whitewater paddling. So um, I had the opportunity to sort of you know, spend my fitness credits. I was a D1 college rower at Berkeley uh, and also rode in high school. So that was kind of my athletic background. Um, and, and, you know, between being a college athlete and then moving on into professional sports in my 20s, that's sort of where I fell in love with and developed like a passion, um, although that's an overused word, but I developed a passion for like health and fitness and taking care of my body. Um, and, but then I decided to go to law school, um, <laughs> which had been my original plan. So I went to law school um, and I actually practiced at a big, huge law firm, actually based out of Pittsburgh called Reed Smith um, for seven and a half years. And I did complex commercial litigation for um, a period of time. And, but during that time, while I was still working as a lawyer, my husband, Kelly, and I started um, a gym called San Francisco CrossFit. And, you know, now in 2022, everybody knows about CrossFit and there there's CrossFit on every corner and, You know, everybody has an opinion about CrossFit. They either love it or they think the people who do it are crazy or they think it's going to injure you, whatever. But everybody knows about it, regardless of what their opinion is. 
Um, but we actually first discovered CrossFit in 2003, and it was kind of on the tail end of our um, Kelly. Kelly and I actually met doing this the same fringe sport, um, extreme whitewater paddling. We met in South America at a World Championship event. Um, but we sort of shared this love of like health and fitness and ex, you know exercising. Um, but in our post professional athlete careers, we just found ourselves like working day jobs and going to the gym and felt really bored by what we were doing and not turned on and just kind of like, you know, doing the Stairmaster and like squatting a little bit or whatever. But we were really uninspired by our like post-professional athlete fitness journey and weren't really sure what to do. So in 2003, we found this website that was posting these random workouts called CrossFit. And we started doing them at our Globo gym. And we just kind of fell in love with it because what we realized when we were doing it is that we, while we thought we were amazing athletes and, you know, I'd been a D1 college athlete and a professional athlete that like we had so much hole, so many holes in our fitness and skill and capability and strength and agility and, and CrossFit really sort of like opened the book on that for both of us. And so, so that made it fun, right? Like anytime you're learning anything new um, and having these experiences, it just becomes fun. So we just started doing CrossFit, started doing CrossFit in our backyard. Um, there were no CrossFits and we were living in San Francisco at the time. So we thought, well, let's start a CrossFit, but we did not start a CrossFit because we were trying to start a business. Um, we started a CrossFit because we could no longer do it in our backyard. Um, we had some friends coming, you know, we'd kind of outgrown our little mini garage yard space. We needed a space to do it. Um, and, you know, just to explain again, what a dark age this was in the CrossFit world and also generally in boutique fitness. I mean, I think the other point I'll make is that everyone takes for granted that there is Barry's Bootcamp and Orange Theory and 27 million yoga studios or whatever. Back in this time, you know, there were, if you wanted to go to the gym, you could go to a big, huge Globo gym, like a 24 hour fitness. And then there were some yoga studios. There was nothing like boutique fitness. It did not exist. Um, in fact, boutique fitness was not even a phrase. Um, and there was no model because there were only four or five other CrossFits at this time. There was no model that running a CrossFit was a business and that it was a business on which one could rely on to like pay your mortgage or your rent or whatever. Um, so we didn't start it for that reason. And there was no model. We couldn't go and ask someone, Hey, what software do you use to run your gym? There wasn't any, where do you get your equipment? Impossible to find. Um, so, you know, we really did not start this thing at all thinking this is a business. I was working full-time as a lawyer. Kelly was working full-time as a physical therapist. Um, we, st we literally started to open this gym because we're like, this is fun. We're learning. We're creating community around this. Let's start a gym. Um, and it really wasn't until we were a couple of years in where we're like, oh, okay, well, people are coming and, you know, maybe we need to have a way they can pay besides writing us a check every month that they remember to write. And, um, you know, but there was really something to it. And I think what drew people to it is one, it was an emergent phenomenon at that time. You know, the people who started CrossFit early were like, you know, they felt like they were part of a growing and new movement of like how you train and where you train and who you train with. And that, you know, it really was like, you know, I give CrossFit all the credit in the world for creating community for people. I mean, I think, you know, as humans, we really need community. Um, and, you know, to the extent that fewer and fewer people are going to church and getting their support and, um, you know, sort of community from church or other kind of like traditional community organizations. Like I really think those gyms created community for people in like a really like primal way that they needed. And I think that was really part of like the early success of that business model. Anyway, um, 
by 2010 or sorry, maybe even late 2009, um, the gym had actually grown enough uh, where Kelly and I were able to leave our day jobs and run the gym. And by that point, we'd also started our other business, which at the time was called Mobility Wad. And WAD is a CrossFit term for workout of the day. Um, and we thought we were real clever. We're like, look how clever we are. We do this mobility stuff and we tacked it on the WAD. So, um, but at this point, Mobility WAD also wasn't a business, um, nor did we intend it to be a business. It, it grew out of, um, after Kelly left his, his formal physical therapy job, he started a physical therapy clinic inside our gym. And so he was seeing patients there. And what he started seeing is that people would come to him and pay him out of pocket, take time off work, you know, hang out on his table. Um, and he was, he felt like 95% of their injuries were because they didn't understand how to move. So when they were doing their physical activity, they were moving poorly and causing their injury and that they also had no tools in which to kind of work on fixing some of those nagging pain and injury on their own. And that he's like, most of these people don't need to see a physical therapist. Most of these people, if they just rolled out their quads while they're watching Netflix on a Tuesday night, could avoid getting involved with the medical care system at all. Because, you know, most people, when it comes to musculoskeletal injury, don't have catastrophe. Most people just have the same nagging pain and injury that we all have from sitting too much and hunching over our computers and looking at our phones and then trying to be physical. And, you know, we, we have all the common modern problems. So that's how Mobility Wad was born. We started making YouTube videos. Um, and I have to tell a funny story about this because again, we were not trying to start a business. We were trying to solve a problem, um, which is how we've started both our businesses, by the way. And, and to the extent that anyone listening to this wants to start a business, I am gigantically a proponent of find a problem and solve it. That's your business. That's your business plan. Like, I don't think you need to go and spend six months, you know, going back to the 1980s and writing out some business plan. Like, do you see a problem and how do you solve it? Like, that's how the Uber guy, the Uber guy was like, I can't get a taxi. It's annoying. Every time I try to get a taxi in San Francisco, I can't get one. I have a problem I need to solve. Wouldn't it be great if I could just, you know, hail a driver from my phone? Like, that was how Uber started was literally, I see a problem trying to solve it. So, the problem we saw we saw was that nobody had any tools to take care of their body. They didn't understand basic and simple movement and mechanics. Um, and it was causing a ton of musculoskeletal pain and injury and inability to function that, that was then leading people into the medical care system unnecessarily. So that was kind of the problem we were trying to solve. Um, we started making these YouTube videos. We didn't, we had a blog on Blogger. We didn't tell anyone. We didn't market the videos. The video quality was terrible. The audio quality was terrible. Um, the only reason it worked, and again, just to give everyone like a, you know, history lesson in technology, it was not until 2010 that you could upload a video directly from your phone to YouTube. So we all take that kind of stuff for granted now. And that's really the only reason it worked because if we'd had to film these videos on a camera, then download them to a computer, then upload them to YouTube. Like that, even those extra steps would have made it not possible. Um, so we just start filming these like low quality videos in our garage, in our backyard, with our kids running around, jumping out of boxes in the background. Um, they were like very DIY videos, but they had really good content. Like it was really useful content. 
And people started finding them. And again, we don't know how because we were doing zero marketing of any kind. Um, one classic example is we made this video in 2012 about icing. Um, and it was like a 45-minute video, horrible audio quality. And someone emailed us in like 2014. And they're like, hey, guys, um, FYI, you guys have this video on YouTube. And the title is IMG underscore 44045746. And it has no description and like a million views. Are you aware of that? And we're like, huh. Maybe we should put a title on that video. Um, so anyway, we uh, we definitely just started small, trying to solve problems. But by 2013, we published our first book, Becoming a Supple Leopard, um, which became a New York Times bestseller. And we also decided at that point, okay, there's something to this, you know, without even trying, we have hundreds of thousands of YouTube subscribers. People, obviously, there's a need for what it is we're talking about. Um, and we decided to figure out how to monetize the business. Um, now, I will tell you, everybody is subscribed to 47,000 things now and subscription businesses are all the rage. But in 2013, nobody, and especially nobody in the health and fitness space was doing subscription businesses. If you were putting content on the website at that time, with the exception of the New York Times and porn, it was all free. Nobody was charging for content. Um, it was like, a, it was weird. And so it was a big risk for us because we were like, well, we're going to go in here. We're going to be the 100% the first people in any health and fitness field of any kind saying, hey, we think our content has at least some value and we think that you should pay for it um, and be happy to. And so we just, we actually, unfortunately are only, like we had to study the New York Times subscription model and we had to study how porn websites were, um, were managing a lot of video content because they were the only people doing it then. And we took that model and put all our content behind a paywall. And I think our original price was $7.99. And we sort of did the switch over. We marketed it on, you know, at that point, we probably only had Facebook, marketed a little bit on Facebook. And by marketed, we posted about it. We weren't like paying to market it. We just like told people, hey, you know, this is happening. And our original goal was, hey, why don't we try to get like 500 subscribers? Because if we had 500 subscribers, that would sort of like mean that Mobility Wad becomes a break-even business. Like it would pay for our time, a little bit of our time and some of our technical stuff and our website and a guy doing our website. Like it would just like, you know, we could sort of run this like break-even business as opposed to just doing it as a pro bono thing. But obviously it turned into a bigger thing and we, you know, more and more subscribers joined and we're like, oh, wow, okay, this is an actual business. Um, and, and what we learned is that people actually were happy to pay for good content. Um, we, you know, uh, of the like, you know, tens of thousands of followers we had, we only had a couple of people who were like, oh, I can't believe you guys are charging us for this content now. Anyway, so this is a really long answer to your question. Fast forward to 2019, and we decided to rebrand our company from Mobility Wad to the Ready State because by this point, we'd written a couple other books. We'd really expanded our product offerings. The company was a lot bigger, and we realized that while well, we kind of started off serving like the athlete and kind of core CrossFit community, that there was really a market and need and interest and desire for our content well outside of those spaces that, you know, that our content was really appropriate for like you know, someone who has neck pain because they've been sitting at their desk all day and isn't really even physically active or, you know, someone who isn't a hardcore athlete, but likes to ride their Peloton every day or, right. We realized it was like much broader and the name of the company mobility wad was really putting us into this narrow space. So we rebranded to, to the ready state. 
Um, and so we've been rocking and rolling on that name for the last couple of years. Um, quick update on the gym. We ran the gym. Um, it became one of the most successful CrossFit gyms ever. Um, really huge brand. You know, people would travel from all over the world to come and visit the gym. We had a huge staff of 25 coaches. Um, you know, it was profitable from day one. Um, and, you know, but we also were in the most expensive real estate market in the country in San Francisco during COVID with a landlord who had no desire to um, support, uh, a, you know, so we were basically just paying tens of thousands of dollars out of pocket month after month after month on a closed business. Um, and so, you know, we decided it was time. We had a great run. Um, certainly that's not how we wanted to close the gym was to sort of have it implode in a global pandemic, but also I think timing wise for us as people, you know, our other business was taking off, um, continuing to take off, you know, we'd been really splitting our attention between two businesses. And so, um, you know, again, we didn't want that business to go down in a flame of glory, like it did in a pandemic. Um, and certainly we would have rather sold it or closed it in, in a different way, but in retrospect, I think it was the right decision for us. And it's really allowed us to focus on growing the ready state, which is what we're doing now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the timing, yeah. terrible in some ways, but like you said, great in other ways. And um, I didn't realize you were accidental entrepreneurs that studied the porn industry to, <laughs> to help monetize your we online are, brand. <laughs> com we are completely <laughs> accidental entrepreneurs, like, like completely, like, we never were like, let's go out and make money. You know, what, what, how can we get funding and venture capital and who can we talk to? Like, we literally were like, what are, you know, we're running into this problem. Doesn't seem like anyone else is doing anything about it. Okay. We're going to do something about it, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which I think is very powerful because, you know, I think, I, agree. I think, you know, there, if they, if you can solve a problem for someone or lots of someone's, there's a business right there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How has the rebrand impacted the business? I, I'm, I know your subscriptions have grown through the roof. Um, you've also added some other ways to monetize, right? Yep. And yeah. can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, um, you know, we, again, like a rebrand is a risk. I think we were worried, um, you know, are we going to lose people or, you know, w when you spend a long time, which in our case was you know, almost 10 years building up Mobility Watt as a brand, you know, it's worrisome to kind of say, okay, we're going to, you know, flip the switch on this and call it something else. Fortunately, we had already named our podcast, The Ready State, which we'd started in 20, like 17 or 18. So there had been some like brand recognition around The Ready State before that. Um, so it wasn't like out of nowhere where we're like, hey, we're The Ready State. Like people had seen, okay, we're The Ready State podcast. Um, but, you know, it went great. And in fact, I feel like our audience was totally open to it. And there were, I mean, it was hard. And I will say anyone who's considering rebranding their company, like get ready. It is a massive amount of work. Like it is, you know, it's not just like swapping out your logo. It's a gigantic undertaking on like a thousand levels. So, um, so, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't engage in it lightly, but it really has helped because I think it's really, you know, what we do isn't just subscription mobility content and movement content. We do a lot more than that. So we really feel like, the, the brand is much more of the umbrella we need to be able to do a lot of different things, you know, and, and that's, it, it's one of our um, sort of secret weapons and challenges as a business. You know, most businesses do a thing, 
Um, and that is they have a subscription model or they have an e-commerce store or they do professional courses or, you know, they do like they have an LMS and do courses. Well, we do all those things and we sell retail and we sell books. Um, and so, you know, we felt like we really needed like an umbrella that really sort of like could encapsulate all the different subparts of our business. So to answer your second question, um, we do teach courses to professionals. Um, and by professionals, I mean... Um, personal trainers, coaches, chiropractors, physical therapists, physicians. Um, we actually have a fair number of just plain old athletes who take our courses too, because they want to kind of understand how the body works and understand how to move better. So, so, but the vast majority of people are coaches, you know, uh, practitioners of some kind. So we have a, a suite of three courses that um, are all online. Um, we, we do and have historically taught a ton of courses live, obviously in the pandemic, you know, we stopped doing anything live. We'll probably go back to doing some live courses, but at least as of now, they're all online. Um, so we have a suite of online courses. We sell these things called fix yourself protocols. Um, so we have a plantar fasciitis protocol and a low back pain protocol, because we realize there's sort of an audience of people who, you know, they just have a specific single problem they're trying to solve, um, as opposed to like really wanting to kind of understand how things work on a global scale on their body and sort of just slowly work on their mobility and mechanics. Um, we obviously have written five books, so we sell books. We do do a little small retail arm where we sell mobility tools and, you know, other little products. Um, we actually work with some other brands as partners. Um, so we work with um, Hyperice and a protein powder company called Momentus, uh, Yeti, Specialized Bikes. Um, so we work with we work with some other companies that are sort of aligned and adjacent to what we're doing, and we we help support them with content and um, sort of brand awareness. And you know, I will say from a partnership standpoint, I mean, we are really militant. Like we tried the affiliate model, and it's just not for us. Like we're not affiliate marketers. It's just not what we do. We tried it. Um, but there are some brands that we really love and use. Um, and I will say it's been this interesting thing that's happened in our business, which is just been this side thing. There's been three or four times where Kelly has found a product he likes and features it in a video and it like changes the company's whole thing. In fact, we just had this guy on our podcast who, uh, owns a company called Slack, Blow, Slack, Slack Bow, and they make this thing called a Slack Block, which is like an, a cool um, Slack line alternative that you can like use in a house or a gym or whatever. And Kelly just randomly found this thing and we made some videos about it. And apparently it was like completely changed this guy's business. Like he went from like, you know, zero to hero because we, you know, we put, we published a little bit about his business. So, so we don't, you know, we, we are never going to be the kind of people who have sponsors on our podcast or partnerships that we work with. Like everyone we work with is actually stuff we actually use that our kids use. That's like you can find in our garage. Um, because we just, in the end, you know, Kelly and I, our superpowers are building brands and building communities. Um, and, we aren't really that good at selling stuff. It's not like our forte. Like it, again, as you can tell, we didn't start our businesses trying to sell stuff. That's not what we're good at. So we, you know, we, we already struggle enough to sell our own stuff. And so we're not going to be in the business of selling other people's stuff unless it's really stuff we use on a daily basis, which there, you know, we, there are plenty of those things. Totally. Makes it a much more natural sell than. Yeah. You're accidental salespeople too. Yes. <laughs> Not just accidental <laughs> entrepreneurs. We are. So let's switch gears for a second, talk a little bit about how, your personal brand. 
I'm curious to know how many teammates or colleagues or, you know, employees do you all have now? And, um, and then I have a couple follow-up questions. Sure. Uh, we're still really small. We have, including Kelly and I, seven employees. And then we also work with some um, contract-based agency partners in marketing and tech to sort of help us like round those corners of what we're doing as a business. Um, obviously, there's something about our presence online that make people think we're way bigger than we are because I do seriously get phone calls where they're like, hello, may I speak with your HR manager? And I'm like, please hold, pause. And then I'm like, hello, how can I help you, right? So, so we obviously, something about our brand makes people think we're a lot bigger than we really are. Um, but no, we're just small and mighty. And, you know, we've really tried to stay lean, especially from a staff standpoint, because, you know, as, as you know, um, you know, employee costs and payroll are the biggest single biggest overhead of any company. Um, and so, you know, we're really careful about hiring only when we really need to hire someone, you know, we don't hire someone when it's, it would be nice to have, we hire someone when we're like, okay, we're all dying and nobody can do this work and we need to hire someone. So, so we're real slow about hiring and, you know, bringing on new people. I think small and mighty is the way to go. Um, as you're building a business, right? Cause you're, you never want to be stressed about making payroll and no, no. or having enough work for somebody. So right. that's absolutely the way I'd go to um, your, how do you and Kelly, split your roles within the company. And, you know, in the past, it seems from what you've shared with me that Kelly is more the face of the organization and you're the person behind the scenes uh, building the company and essentially like the the structure, like the scaffolding of the company. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that and how you've also figured out, figured out how to do that? I mean, Kelly, obviously having a background in physical therapy, right? There's some aspects of the business that naturally are more aligned with his own strengths and, yeah. and background. Yeah. So, I mean, we really, I, I will start by saying we really feel lucky because as you know, and anyone who's in business knows partnerships are hard and then husband and wife, wife partnerships can, you know, have a whole other level of challenge. Um, I think the reason it works so well for us is that we really have like completely different skill sets. <laughs> and so we are the yin and yang. Um, and so even though we're working together, like what we're doing is uh, obviously we talk at a big level about plans and strategy and whatever, but like our day-to-day -day work is like completely different. Like we're not doing the same things at all. There's no overlap. And you're exactly right. I mean, I am definitely kind of, you know, the operator extraordinaire. Um, you know, I am doing all the strategy and hiring and planning and organization and, you know, all the scaffolding that is making the business run. Um, you know, all of our employees report to me. Um and, you know, Kelly's kind of in his own little organizational structure by himself. Um, we have an ongoing joke in our company about what in the hell Kelly's, Kelly's title is. Um, and lately his title has been talent. Um, and then, and then when he's having a good day, we call him lead talent or master talent. Um, but yeah, he really is the face of the business. You know, one of his superpowers is that he is, and I will tell you that, you know, he's also what, 30,000 videos in, but one of Kelly's superpowers is he's really comfortable on camera and can really just chat away on camera in ways that I am really uncomfortable on camera. Like when I get on camera with it and I'm like, Oh, and I feel weird and awkward, uncomfortable. It's like, it's like not a space where I feel my best at all or my most confident. And so Kelly is able to really combine his like deep knowledge and sort of creative thinking about physical therapy and how the body works to this amazing presence on camera. Um, so that's why we call him talent. 
Um, and I will say that, um, I, you know, I don't know if people know this. I mean, I think a lot of people know who Kelly is, but he really is such an innovator in the space. I mean, you know, everybody now bandies about the word mobility, like, oh, I'm going to go do my mobility work. Well, Kelly invented that term as it's used today. Mobility was not used as a word in any way. It was stretching, flexibility, maybe a couple of people said range of motion. But before Kelly and before mobility, WAD, mobility was only used in some very deep niche physical therapy context and also in, in like wheelchair sales um, at, to get like mobility, right? To move around. Um, so Kelly really popularized the use of the word mobility and was really the first person to kind of rethink physical therapy and sort of self-care around the body and say, hey, you know, we can't smash ourselves and train for a triathlon and then sit in a chair for 12 hours and then be really confused why we tore our Achilles. Like, like, hey, that, you know, he was really this person who started to make these connections for people. Um, and so he really was like, I give him a massive amount of credit for really kind of rethinking, um, really being the first person to talk about how you move being important. Um, you know, how you move, whether that's athletically or just through your day, how you move is important. Um, and what people don't realize is that we are, we're known as like the mobility people, but what we really are is the movement people. We started by saying, Hey, you can't move like an asshole. And then wonder later why X, Y, or Z hurts in your body. Or like, like, let me tell, take the recreational runner, for example, because everybody sees them or is one. Um, running is actually one of the most complex skills there is, athletic skills. And 85% of runners are injured in a year. So the injury rate of runners is high, but almost no one hires a running coach. So you would never go to the gym and do an Olympic lift, Rachel, without hiring a coach because you're, you would be like, oh my God, Olympic lifting is dangerous. I would never do that without a coach. That's super complicated. But it's interesting that there's this disconnect in running, maybe because it's base human skill, everybody should be able to run, that nobody would ever think, oh, I'm going to hire a running coach. But like recreational runners were like our gold money as a business owner when we owned a physical therapy clinic. I'm like, great, bring it on. Keep on recreational running because you guys all... You run, your running technique is horrible. You don't even know that you should care about it. And then you're surprised when you get injured later. So even though we're known as the mobility people, you know, the mobility is actually sort of the answer. The, the first part of it is, do you understand how your body should move? Are you actually trying to work on your technique and improve your, your movement and then maybe one of the reasons why you can improve your movement or your technique is that you're stiff and you need to work on your mobility and that that is then going to give you the range of motion you need to be able to move correctly so you can avoid injury, right? So, so we backed, even though we're known as the mobility people, we backed into mobility, right? We really started off with like, hey, you need to care about how your body moves, Um and how you move in whatever it is, whether that's sitting all day as a desk jockey, which I would count as moving or not moving, but it's still a way that you're using your body. Um, mobility is a way to put some input into your body and give your muscles and tissues some slack so you can move well and you can do the things you love and hopefully with less injury. I don't even know if that answers your question. I went off on a total tangent. 
their racial. No, I mean, you're clearly so passionate about what you do <laughs> and, and that shines through. How would, how would you say that your team defines your personal brand, your attributes? If there, if, if, if you were invisible and overheard them talking about you and how you are to work for what your strengths are, what would they say? Um, God, I mean, it would all sound probably very boring because really my skills are being an operator, which sounds very boring. Um, I am really reliable. I am very responsive. I am a really hard worker. Um, I care a ton about the people that work for me, like almost in a motherly way. Um, so I'm, you know, I am focused on that. I'm also not, a, although I am a total operator and in many ways, very controlling my management style, I really try to, I, I'm not a micromanager. I mean, you know, in many ways, my company is a dictatorship, right? Like I care about everybody's opinions. Um, but in the end, like I'm usually the final decider and I do weigh opinions and thoughts and whatever, but like in the end, you know, it's me who makes a lot of decisions based on all the available knowledge to me. Um, so so, but I really don't want to micromanage people. Um, and I really take this very seriously in my hiring decisions because I, I want to hire people who can see what needs to be done and do it without a lot of management. And I also will only hire people who are willing to do whatever. And I call this the sweeping up the chalk phenomenon because this is, I owned a gym for so many years. Um, you know, I want to hire people who don't ever get to a point in their career where they think they're above sweeping up the chalk of the gym if the gym needs to be swept up. Um, I want to hire people that are like, hey, I have 10 minutes. I see something that needs to be done. So I shall do it because I'm at work. Um, so for me, that's like one of the biggest qualities I look for is like, can you work independently um, and hard without a lot of oversight and management? Um and, you know, are you willing to do whatever it takes? So even if you were hired to do X, are you willing to do Y? Because that's what the company needs. You know, because one thing that's really important for, I think, people to know, especially small business owners, is when you have a small business, you are not in the business of hiring experts. You have to hire generalists. It's not until you reach a certain point as a company, and I have not reached that at seven employees or seven and a half employees. So I don't know whether it's at 10 employees or 15 or 20, that then you can hire experts. But when you are trying to run and grow a small company, your marketing person can't just do marketing. Your marketing person might need to help with customer service and your marketing person might need to sweep up the chalk on the gym floor. And, and, you know, our podcast producer also, you know, is our production director and she helps manage and run all our videos. So everybody who works for me is a generalist and they have to be at this stage of business. Like we can't be in the business of like having a financial person where all they do is financial stuff. Like we do have agencies and consultants we work with who are experts that we bring in sort of on the periphery. But when you're building a small team, you've got to have generalists, you know, and I'm, and I'm an op because I'm a very operational CEO because this company is small. So I'm in it doing the work with everybody. I'm not just in the clouds, you know, looking at the financials and thinking about strategy, right? I'm in it doing a lot of the work alongside these people. So I'm very operational. Um, so, you know, we've really made it work by having people who can work independently, are willing to do whatever it takes, you know, and, and it's often just one of those things where we'll have a staff meeting and like something needs to be done and someone who just happens to have time will raise their hand and do it, even if it's not technically like, quote unquote, their job. So it, that's really mission critical in, in a small business. I mean, if you only have the budget for a few employees, they all need to be generalists or willing to be generalists. 
Yeah. With the, yeah, no, totally, totally agree with that. That makes a lot of sense. The I love the sweep up the chalk um, statement and the way you phrase that. How do you, when you're interviewing people, how do you assess that they are that type of person, you know, willing to roll up their sleeve and do that thing? Do you just ask them directly? Yeah, I do. I ask them directly. I also ask Mm -hmm. them like what sort of different actual roles I I would ask them, like, what would a day look like in their prior jobs? Like, okay, so you got to work at nine. Like, tell me what you actually did hour by hour in your day. Like, what were you doing? You know, were you on your email for an hour and then working on a document and then over here having meeting? Like, well, you know, it's, it's super interesting to get kind of some insight into what people actually do on a day-to-day basis. Um, and then I will straight up not only ask them, but let them know that it's an expectation of, of our company. Like, you know, we're very clear, like, look, we are a small bootstrapped scrappy company where everybody's willing to do everything. And so, you know, if you come work for us, you know, the phrase, that's not my job, can never come out of your mouth. Like it's going to be, do you happen to be the person who has, you know, an hour of spare time this week? Like you might need to learn how to do something that's outside of what your job is and do it. Um, So I make that pretty clear as an expectation up front. Um, You know, the other thing I look at is, you know, we really are a small team and like a very family oriented team. Um, I have of course done what I think every small business entrepreneur has done, which is a couple of my friends actually work for me, um, which I know is like basically every entrepreneur does this and it often ends up ruining friendships and can be a problem. Um, So I do have a couple of my friends that work for me. who started off as friends and are still friends, even though we work together. Um, And, but we really have a very small family vibe. You know, I know what's going on with everybody's kids. We actually hang out on the weekend. Um, So that's actually a huge thing because we really are um, very like connected and social and we have a really kind of family like vibe. So that's, that's important. You know, is that what people want to be involved in? Um, And so those are big focuses for me. Like our, our company culture and vibe is really important because we're so small, right? Like one person who isn't pulling their weight or one person who's saying that's not my job or, you know, one person who says, you know, no way I would never log into my email on a Saturday. Like that won't work in a small business. Like we really kind of need this sort of like, hey, everyone's going to do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. Right. Is everybody local? No. To where you live? Okay. No. No, we actually, um, yeah, and it was a really great exercise for me because mostly up until a couple of years ago, I'd only hired um, contract people outside of the, you know, we're in California. I'd only ever actually hired contractors outside of California, which is pretty easy to hire a contractor, you know, over state lines. But I actually hired my first employee in New York, um, which was a great exercise for me as an entrepreneur, thanks to a lot of like modern HR technology that made it really easy for me. You know, I used this like payroll platform that, you know, it still was a thing and I had to, you know, get insurance and do some other things, but but that was a really great exercise for me to actually hire an employee in another state because it's like, like so many things when you're an entrepreneur, once you learn how to do it once, you're like, okay, I got this. Like I could hire people anywhere. Um, Most of our team still is local. um, And that's honestly how I prefer it. I think any challenges we've ever had with our team, team specific and communication challenges have often been because we're not together. And so certain things, you know, someone who's remote doesn't realize that we're working on this thing. And the fact that we're working on this thing doesn't get communicated. And so there's, there are some uh, unique challenges, I think, to having a team all over the place. Although we do, we have, you know, 
all of our agency partners are all over the country, including a lot on the East Coast. So we're having to manage time zones. Um, we have to manage that with meetings. And, you know, but most of our staff is local. You know, 75% of our staff is local. 25 is remote. You mentioned that culture is really important to you and the company. And, and I have found over the years that oftentimes, no matter how big the company the culture and the vibe of the company is really reflects that of the owner. In your case, because you're a co-founder with your husband, which personality do you think your company mostly reflects? Yours, Kelly's, or a combination of the two? Or do you think it, it has its own unique personality? I mean, I think it reflects both of ours. And I think one of the things that is, I will say, like, and you and I've talked about this, like, you know, do you, do you not raise money? One of the things that is really nice about having a privately owned, totally bootstrapped company is that we're not always in a panic to um, grow exponentially and meet other people's expectations and please our investors, our shareholders. Um, you know, we can have a few bad months as a company without having the panic, you know? And, and also um, because Kelly and I, at least presently in our company, you know, we, and also as people, as you can tell by the way we started our businesses, you know, Kelly and I like, you know, we want to have enough money to spend, you know, have our, send our kids to college and be able to retire one day and be able to travel a little bit. But like, we are not people whose goal has ever been to like get stupid rich. That's not a goal of ours at all. And we don't care. Like we literally could care less about that. You know, we both were river rafting guides for a long time. Like, you know, we're happiest like in a campsite in the wilderness somewhere. So, um, so, you know, having some, you know, classic entrepreneur exit where we get fabulously wealthy is like, it's not really a goal for us. And because we don't have any investors and we're bootstrapped, um, it does take this edge off, I think that does help our company culture a lot because, you know, again, we could have a month where our revenue's down by 15%. And, you know, rather than having a complete and utter panic attack, we can get together as a team and say, okay, you know, what did we think we were doing that wasn't working and how can we write the ship? And okay, it might take three or four months to kind of move back up the trajectory of growth or whatever. But again, it's not this like, oh my God, you know, we have, board and 27 investors who are maybe losing money because we're, our company's not performing. And that I think adds a level of like sort of stress and panic to a company that we don't have. And so I think it helps our, our culture be like, you know, our team is motivated. We're all motivated on the same path of trying to grow this company. And, and it's not even really about growing this company. It's like, how many people can we get our product in the hands of because we actually really think it can help them and change their lives and make them feel better. Um, so. So I think the culture is a combination of Kelly and I um, and sort of that yin and yang. Um, but I think it's largely influenced um, by not having a ton of external influence. Like we are really able to sort of build it exactly the way we want it and have it have the vibe mm -hmm. we want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you foresee in the next two to three year future of the ready state? Well, you know, I said all that. And then I will say that I, we do kick around the idea of like, should we raise money for this company and see if we can sort of take a swing for the fences and try to really, you know, get this out there. Um, 
because it is, it is a challenge for us. Sometimes, you know, our competitors probably outspend us by a hundred to one in marketing. And, you know, so, so it, it is, it, there are some innate challenges with being a really small bootstrap company in a world where everybody in your industry is taking massive amounts of venture capital. Um, so, you know, we do talk about whether we want to take a swing for the fences, but I mean, I think, you know, in the next two to five years, regardless of whether we take a big swing for the fences in terms of growth by bringing on investment or we just stay small, you know, we just want to figure out how do we reach the most people, grow our subscriber base, continue to sort of diversify our revenue stream so that we're not just exclusively, you know, we're not just exclusively a subscription company. So we have like multiple revenue streams, um, figuring out what products we can continue to improve and create to serve the most people. Um, and then, and then, you know, again, I think, you know, and you and I talked about this, Kelly and I are working on our next book called Built to Move. Um, what I would say in the health and fitness industry right now, and, and uh, you know, in many ways, it, Kelly and I are probably part of the problem, but I mean, the health and fitness industry is getting an F right now in terms of effectiveness. Um, and the way I like to describe that is that, you know, we've done a great job in the health and fitness business if you are someone who is already within that vertical, if you're someone who goes to CrossFit or trains for triathlons or is kind of like a hardcore like athlete, like someone who, if you're someone who would use the word athlete to describe yourself, you spend a lot of your free time and money on health and fitness pursuits. The, the industry is getting an A for those people. We have made those people better. They can track all this information. They have better food options. They understand how and when and where and how much to eat. Um, they know how important sleep is like though there's been this little vertical of people, which is maybe like 5% of the population, which have really benefited from all this innovation of technology and knowledge and sharing in the health and fitness space. Like those people and Kelly and I are those people we've gotten better. We understand more, we're more sophisticated. You know, we understand all these things more, but we have done a crap job at bringing along the 95% of people in this country and world who are really struggling from a health standpoint. I mean, all you have to look at is the data. I mean, for the second year in a row, the the diabetes death and deaths in this country are over a hundred thousand. There was just a bunch of articles about it yesterday, like floating around the internet. Um, and I could list a hundred other statistics about how poorly we're doing from a health standpoint as a country. I think COVID obviously highlighted some of that because you know there was such an impact on you know people with poor health and COVID. Um, and what I would say is we're really sucking at that. We have not figured out how to get out of our own vertical and actually provide tools and information to the everyday person about how to do basic stuff to help take care of their health in ways that fit into busy, crazy lives of people with jobs. So I, to us on sort of a sort of ethical, moral, 30,000 foot level. Like that's what we're thinking about is how can we do a better job there? How can we reach, how can we take all this insane knowledge we have? I mean, for the love of God, you can for $200, put this thing on your watch and like track your heart rate variability over time as you sleep and see all these important trends in your health. I mean, the amount of sophistication and technology is out there, but right now it's not scalable or it's not scaling to most people. It's not working. So, um, so that's what we're focused on is how can we, how can we get our product, which we think really helps people feel better and have some agency over their body and have less interaction with the medical care system, but separate and apart from that, like, how can we, you know, be part of 
something that is helping sort of change the trajectory of our health in this country because we are really sucking. Mm. So it sounds like you want to focus on the 95% of the population that is not, you know, the pro athlete. You want to make things more accessible to people. You want to find ways to integrate health and, and movement mobility, right, into their day to day. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, and again, I don't want to be one of those entrepreneurs that's like, my app is helping tons of people, right? Because again, it's always this complex thing where it's like, you know, we are a for-profit business and Kelly and I do pay our mortgage based on, you know, revenue we make from this business. And so, you know, we want to do that and we want to be able to, you know, help our employees retire and so forth. So like we are entrepreneurs running a business, um, but we also really are mindful of like, how are we, you know, are we actually helping people? Um, are we contributing? Because I think, you know, one of the big criticisms I have is we've overcomplicated it. There's actually too much information now. And I think people, um, you know, to me, it seems so obvious. I'm like, you know, of course, like you should do this to exercise. And of course you should be my tracking this. And of course you should be eating this many vegetables and whatever, but most people don't actually know that. Like, we, in our little vertical, we think it's so obvious that everybody knows this information, but they don't, or they kind of know, but they don't know how to implement it as a habit in their life. They don't know how to fit it into a busy life. You know, there's so many complexities going on with our, you know, universal health problems. Um, so we haven't cracked that nut at all, um, but it, we're mindful of it, of, you know, how, how can we not continue to be part of the noise how can we actually be actually helpful to people? Right. Well, I'm confident you're going to figure that out because you've just solved, right, two other problems with your CrossFit business and the ready state starting. So as you kind of focus on this next next chapter of the ready state, I think it's a, a noble goal and I think many people will be served by it. And I think people are looking for simple solutions People want to be healthy, yeah. right? They don't want to be unhealthy. No. They want to feel good. And so if if there's a way that you can meet that population in a way where they will see the content, consume it, and be able to apply it, you know, that's your home run right there. Yep. Yep. Well, I, fingers crossed. No need to cross them. You got it. What? Where is the best place for people to learn more about you, Juliet, and learn about The Ready State? We are at thereadystate.com on the internet at the ready state on all the social channels. Although, um, as you and I talked about beforehand, we're emerging on TikTok, um, AKA we are trying to join TikTok and we are just at ready state on TikTok. Um, but yeah, mostly at the ready state on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the Um, you know, like every other subscription business, we have a free trial. So anybody who wants to just take a look at what we're doing with no obligation, you can just go in and watch some of our content and see if it helps you and bail out if it doesn't. Sounds good. Thank you so much for being on and sharing your passion. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Business of You. If you found a little dose of inspiration or learned something new, please leave a review and share it with a friend or even two. Interested in building your brand and business? Tune in next time to the Business of You podcast. And remember, there's only one you. You're the biggest differentiator your business has. Until next time, friends.